Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the eighth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Dark Knight Rises. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And I know it's been a little bit of time (laughs) between Christopher Nolan reviews. We were back with Inception. That was about a month and a half ago. We did take a break. We reviewed two anime films, two live action films. We did, listeners, if you have been absent since the previous Christopher Nolan review, we have reviewed Metropolis. If you've been with the podcast for a while, you know we've talked about that movie a lot, but now we finally reviewed it. So that's a review you don't want to miss. Oh, yeah. And we also started the Jason Bourne movie review series. The trilogy of reviews is out. We will come back to review the final two films. Currently, I'm watching Treadstone, the Jason Bourne TV show with my dad. I'm going to try to watch the three hour Jason Bourne movie. Uh, We're going to see how that goes. I believe it's on YouTube. Um, I I saw it, I think, on YouTube, the Bourne Identity original uh, miniseries. It is on YouTube. Now it's Mm -hmm. on my Plex. Yeah, <laughs> but regardless, you don't want to miss those Born reviews as well, because those movies are a lot of fun and there's a lot to talk about with those. So we do have plenty of content and it's kind of funny because there was what a four year gap between The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises and in movie time, the movie takes place like eight years later and we right. took uh what do we take we took like seven weeks between between that so we're trying to give you a real realistic time period between movies yeah yeah somewhat realistic between the two of them exactly now before of course between the dark knight and the dark knight rises was the inception mm-hmm. um we've also reviewed that but uh i know i remember that this was really big when it came out and it, i don't remember a whole lot of trailers of the last few movies especially from christopher nolan from here and back. But this was the one that I remember actually seeing the trailers for. And I do remember at the time I had already seen The Dark Knight, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember specifically the trailer with the football player running down the field as the field itself is just kind of falling apart behind him. I remember that one specifically um, as it's like one of the one of the main focuses of the trailer that was released at the time. So I remember this was very big when it came out, which is no surprise because The Dark Knight was also huge. So speaking of trailers, well, first of all, did you see this movie in theaters? Technically, yes. <laughs> okay. um, we watched it. I mean, we watched it at the drive-in, you, me, and another friend of ours. Yeah, that's um, right. Yes. So I guess technically that's considered a theatrical experience Mm -hmm. um not exactly in a room but either way yes i did get to see this in the theater um and we also saw total recall um that week as well oh my gosh we'll we'll talk about we'll talk (laughs) i'll I'll briefly (laughs) mention total recall yeah 
I'll briefly mention Total Recall. Um, we get to the box office because oh. um, that was kind of a contender when it when it came out mm-hmm. as well for Dark Knight. Yeah, I absolutely remember seeing the trailers. And I just remember the trailers. These trailers were so well-crafted. I mm-hmm. thought they just gave me chills. They really didn't tell you much. They did a fantastic job of teasing you, giving you hints at what was to come. It shouldn't be hard to believe, but I saw it opening weekend in IMAX. Of course. And it, But what is hard to believe is that this was eight years ago. Ooh, that's true. I did not realize that this is that far back. We're coming up on the films. Well, no, no. By the time we've recorded this and by the time it's released, we have passed the film's eight year anniversary because it came out July 19th, 2012. That's right. Yeah. And it is fascinating because when you do look at the release dates, um, almost all Nolan films come out in July for the most part. And that's why we're reviewing these movies right now is because Tenet Mm -hmm. is coming out. Uh, very soon, as long as they don't push it back. But according to Christopher Nolan, he's not going to let Warner Brothers do that. Right, right. So let's get into some numbers. Um, Now, it should be noted that uh, opening weekend of this movie, there was a shooting that Mm -hmm. happened in Aurora, Colorado. Right. And I know that as kind of a safety measure for anything else that could happen, Warner Bros. pulled all of the... Um, trailers for this movie, along with a trailer for another movie that had something similar, um, that something similar to a shooting in the trailer itself. Mm. Um, and they didn't publish any, like, um, they didn't publish any returns until the Monday after the weekend had ended. Um, so I was curious to see, you know, what that would have done to the numbers. Would it have affected it in any way? And it doesn't look like it did a whole lot. Um, because opening weekend uh, with a budget of 230 million, mm-hmm. opening weekend returned 160.8 million, which is still pretty good. Yeah. Domestically overall, 448.1 million, foreign markets at 636.3 million, with a worldwide total of $1.1 billion in the box office. It did crazy numbers. Yeah. But Which is no surprise because The Dark Knight already did very, very well. And also was a billion dollar return. Right. And yeah, exactly. So no way was this movie going to do worse, I would say, than The Dark Knight mm-hmm. because that was the biggest film of the year. Right. And although audiences did have to patiently wait for years for the conclusion, I think the hype was so strong, you know, and not to mention Inception in between was just an independent property. And that alone grossed over $800 million at the worldwide box office and got eight Oscar nominations. Right, exactly. And this is also at the time, his highest opening weekend, which was kind of shocking. It did beat out The Dark Knight by only like $2 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this is his widest release at 4,404 theaters. Yeah, so practically every theater mm-hmm. at that point. It didn't gross as much domestically as The Dark Knight. I'm I'm thinking that has to do with the shooting. That, that's what I that's wonder speculation. is. Yeah, that's what I wonder is how much of the shooting um, had affected the numbers. I'm sure it affected it somewhat, but... I, I'm curious to know how much it did affect it. Yeah, and in the foreign markets, it grossed 
like $150 billion more. And then, like I said, at the time, this was his highest grossing movie. It did beat out The Dark Knight at the box office. And as far as um, the trilogy goes, as far as how much the trilogy has grossed, it's crazy numbers. So the trilogy over just the three films has grossed $2.4 billion. Oh, yeah. And that's worldwide. That's yeah. uh, domestically, it's grossed over a billion worldwide. It grossed over a billion. Um, it's huge. The series garnered nine Oscar nominations, two wins just for the trilogy alone of superhero movies, completely revamped what we know as uh, a superhero movie could be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This series, this trilogy of movies completely rewrote how we view superhero movies now. But let's talk about box office rank because this is kind of interesting. Um, it, I guess it's not super interesting because it was number one for its first three weeks. No surprise there. Um, when it came out, I don't think it really didn't go up against anything. Ice Age Continental Drift had already been in for a week and it dropped <laughs> to number two at the time. Um, number three on the numbers was blank for some reason. Um, so I... I guess I'm just going to skip it. Mm-hmm. Ted was in for at number four and it was in its fourth week and brave was there. Um, but it was also in its fifth week at number five. So second week, the watch and step up revolution came out, although they were number three and number four. Um, Ice Age was still number two and Ted was still number f- and Ted moved down to number five week. Number three, however, we saw the release of total recall, which I know that you and me, Another one of our friends got to see in the theater along with this movie, or sorry, in the drive-in along with this movie. And at number three, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Dog Days, which I was also in the theater for at some point for whatever reason. Um, and then, of course, number three, The Born Legacy came out along with a campaign, um, and that bumped it down to number three in the box office. Ooh. So theatrically and with its box office rank, it did very well, especially because it came out in the summer. So there's going to be a lot of movies coming out anyways. So very well, which is no surprise. I did check and it does look like the amazing Spider-Man was at the box office that weekend. Uh, It had been there for three weeks and it was number three at the box office. Ah, okay. So I wonder why that did didn't show up in the numbers. Interesting. I don't know. So another superhero movie was there as well. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of other numbers, I did want to note real quick that this is the longest of the trilogy. And this is the longest film Nolan had done so far. Two years later, Interstellar will beat that for runtime. Still don't know the runtime of Tenant yet. But uh, I did find it interesting that Nolan's if you look at his runtimes, they just keep going up and up and up and up and up. Yeah, they do. They do. If you're curious, if you want to watch the trilogy, you want to binge watch it together, it's going to take you about seven and a half hours. Yep. I've actually done that one time. Oh I I think I uh, just gotten the DVD box set back before I got started collecting Blu-rays oh. of this trilogy. Huh. And one day, it was probably during the, one day during the summer, I decided to watch all three of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I think it's Ooh. right at seven hours, I want to say, um, not including credits and stuff. Oh, so sure, sure. it it got pretty long there on the last movie trying to make it to the end. I don't know if I could do it. I don't. Uh, I'm surprised. I was getting very restless. I'm surprised I made it through. I'm surprised. Yeah. Now, being the final film in a trilogy, 
Um, I guess now we can look at its ratings to see how it stacks up against The Dark Knight mm -hmm. and Batman Begins. Because I know that Nolan had said that um, if he was to do a third film in a trilogy to do a capstone on it, he wants to make sure that he is not only emotionally invested in writing the story, but also make sure that, you know, he's wondering how do you top what came before? And that's why he was initially hesitant to write The Dark Knight Rises until about 2010, I believe, is when he said that he finally cracked the idea for this movie and set out to actually finish writing it. So, score-wise, um, not as high as The Dark Knight in total. IMDb at an 8.4, which is still very, very good, uh, with currently number 70 on the top 250 list. Uh, Metascore has it at a 78. Rotten Tomatoes has it at an 87 critic score and 90% audience score. Cinema score at an A with a letterbox score of 3.7. So not as high as The Dark Knight, but still very, very high scores. Yeah, very high, very strong scores all around. Uh, very solid. And you're right, it's not as high as The Dark Knight. I did find it interesting that as far as the IMDb Top 250 goes, this film did start at number 37 mm -hmm. um, the year it came out. And it's been on there all eight years since its release, but it's slowly been creeping up. Um, so yeah, 37. Now you said it's at 70? Yeah, that's what uh, IMDb told me when I was looking at it. So it's actually been going down. Hmm. Because when I wrote um, up the whole list a couple months ago, it was at 72. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But um, it is interesting because the critic score is identical to Inception. It is lower than The Dark Knight. Um, the meta score is higher than Inception, still lower than The Dark Knight. And the A cinema score is the exact same for the entire trilogy. Yeah. I mean, that's also we we've noted that that seems to be a common trend with like movie series is they tend to gravitate around the same score, if not the same cinema score. Yeah, unless it is like we're going to talk about with the Bourne movies and they come out a long time later and then audiences mm -hmm. aren't always too pleased about it. But yeah, hey, yeah. it's Christopher Nolan. The one thing I was surprised about is no Oscar nominations at all. That's true. That's true. Uh, let's see. Batman Begins had a couple, right? I know Dark Knight had eight. Yeah, I know at least Dark Knight, his previous two films, Dark Knight and Inception, had 16 total nominations with six wins. Yeah. And his next two films will be a major presence at the Oscars. Right. This one is kind of weird because it just didn't seem to make. I mean, it was critically and audience well received. But as far as like technical awards go, didn't get anything. Yeah, which is uh, it was surprising, I would say, given, you know, how many Oscars his last few movies have already gotten. Mm -hmm. uh, Batman Begins did get one Oscar nomination, but no wins. Okay. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises, where have you been? But maybe you're younger. That's okay. If you haven't seen The Dark Knight Rises and you don't want the film spoiled for you, which I don't recommend getting it spoiled for you, so go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film and come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. All right. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a long one. It's a, kind of a complex and it is a you know two hour and 45 minute movie, so... <laughs> there you go. There's your, there's your fair warning. It has been eight years since Harvey Dent's death and the events of the Dark Knight. Since then, a new Dent Act has been put into effect, providing cops with more power. Wayne Enterprises is also beginning to lose money as Bruce Wayne sunk almost all of the company's worth 
into a clean energy project, but then decided to halt development when he found that it could be used as a weapon. Daggett, a rival to Wynn Enterprises, has started buying up shares up to the company to hopefully absorb it into his own. He brings mercenary Bane with him to finish the job. Bane takes Dr. Leonard Pavel, a physicist who worked on the Wayne Clean Energy Project, and frames his death in a plane crash. Bane and his henchmen begin building their base in the underground tunnels of Gotham City. After obtaining Wayne's fingerprints from cat burglar Selina Kyle, Bane heads to the Gotham Stock Exchange to buy up a bunch of stock under Wayne's name to completely bankrupt Wayne Enterprises. Batman resurfaces to stop Bane and his men, although he is unsuccessful. Although assigned this task from Daggett, Bane has ulterior motives and kills Daggett, using the stolen money to expand his own operation. Bruce assigns Miranda Tate, another activist who, looking for funding for her own energy project, as CEO of Wayne Enterprises to hopefully save the company. Batman then has Selina Kyle show him where Bane is operating in exchange for the Clean Slate, a program that can wipe somebody off the map, a tool that Daggett didn't follow through with previously. But Kyle herself has ulterior motives as well, locking Batman in with Bane. Bane reveals that he too was a part of the League of Shadows and is here to fulfill Phil Ra's al Ghul's plan. Bane takes the bat across the sea and into the same pit that he was born from, telling him that he is not here to break his body, but to break his spirit. Back in Gotham, Bane sets his plan into motion. He steals the inner core of Wayne's energy project, turning it into an atom bomb. He sections off the city by blowing out the bridges, leading to the mainland killing the mayor and Dr. Pavel, the only man who can stop the energy core from exploding. He exposes the truth about Harvey Dent and releases the prisoners from Blackgate Penitentiary, a prison for criminals who's, who were incarcerated under the Dent Act. The entire Gotham police force is stuck in the underground tunnels when they are all sent in to flesh out Bane's men, throwing the entire city into chaos, upsetting the established societal order. Back in the pit, Bruce realizes that Bane was born from the pit after a soldier also, uh, who actually is Raza Ghoul, fell in love with a woman and who became pregnant. She was thrown into the pit and the soldier was exiled. Bruce escapes from the pit after learning that the child had made the leap without the rope. Bruce heads back to Gotham City reveal and releases the police trapped underground, attacks Bane and his men. Batman and Bane fight once again. The bat gains the upper hand when he punches Bane's face mask, breaking some of the tubing. He searches for the detonator but is stabbed in the side by Miranda Tate. Come to find out, Bane wasn't the child in the pit. She was. She pushes the button on the detonator, but it's too late. Gordon has already disabled the receiver on the core, building, buying our heroes a little more time. After the machinery is flooded, Batman realizes that he must sacrifice himself to save his own city. He latches the core to the bat and flies into the ocean where it explodes, saving the city. Batman is honored as a hero. Wayne Manor becomes an orphanage, Officer Blake builds a new bat signal, and Alfred heads to Florence where he sees Bruce living a normal life. But it's not the end. Officer Blake receives an anonymous package leading him to the underground Batcave. A platform begins to rise, signaling a Batman successor to the city of Gotham as credits roll. Oh, good job, Alan. I don't envy you having to write <laughs> a plot summary for this movie. I feel like we've had a lot of these, a lot of really complex plots that we have to summarize in a shorter amount of time that are just really convoluted. Yeah, guess what I get to do next week? Interstellar. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> and it's even longer, and it's talking about astrophysics, which I know nothing about. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, yeah, just I want to briefly talk about that ending there that you just mentioned. I don't know how you feel about it, but I really do actually love 
that Nolan gives that nod to the fans that Robin exists in the universe and Robin's not going to work with Batman. He's going to take up his mantle. We don't know if he's going to call himself Batman. Mm. He's going to call himself Robin. What exact, how exactly he's going to fight crime. And of course, Nolan never had any, any intention to make a Robin um, fourth part film or whatever spinoff movie. Right. This was right. just a nice nod and a nice wrap up that the Batman legacy would continue with that of Robin. So I like it and I love the symbolism of him rising up and then the title flashes. I have always enjoyed that part. Yeah, it definitely. And it, it kind of goes in line because um, this and this is like a whole different discussion as well. It, it kind of goes in line with the ideal of the Batman, right? Because the Batman is definitely meant to be a symbol of hope and a symbol of justice for the city of Gotham. And we saw that, you know, when Batman kind of just disappears for a while, something kind of bubbles up from the underbelly of the city, which ends up being Bane in this instance. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of interesting to see that even when Batman is, you know, gone, um, or even when the Batman, the original Batman himself is no longer going to be Batman, there's going to be somebody else to take his place, um, which is, in this case, Robin, played by Jason Gordon-Levitt. So it's, I'd say even thematically it works because of the character of Batman and what he stands for and, of course, how this movie portrays that. Uh, it definitely makes it, even though we know that we're not going to get, you know, Robin sequels to this movie, I think it definitely plays into, you know, what exactly the Batman legacy is all about. Yeah. And I think this whole first act is an incredibly strong way to start the film, not to mention just the incredible IMAX opening of the plane being right. ripped apart. I don't know if you got to watch any special features on that, but the way they did it is crazy because they did hang an actual fuselage from a helicopter. Mm -hmm. and um, they did have planes flying over each other. They had people jumping out. They had people breaking into the plane. Um, that was all real. Now, the inside shots, they built a real scale fuselage and just on the ground tilted it straight up and had it move around. Right. But Nolan is always trying to top himself with each opening that he does. And I got to say, this is probably the craziest opening we've seen from him yet. Yeah, I would say definitely technically. Um, because although Inception had the scene of the rotating hallway, that wasn't exactly yeah, the opening. Yeah. But yeah, this this opening with Bane um, essentially taking Dr. Pavel and framing his death, I remember being a very exhilarating scene when we were watching it at the drive-in. Um, because I, at the time mm -hmm. I was like, how did they, how do they do that? Where they attach cables to a plane and then pull it upright vertically and it rips the wings off and rips the tail off and they hop inside. Like I was like, how do they do that? Um, with me, like with a movie like this. Yeah. And Nolan of course is like, we're going to do it practically mm -hmm. with very little CGI. And that's how almost everything was done here in this movie was a lot of practicals. The bat plane isn't really flying. It is a full scale thing, like on a basically giant car that yeah. is, Moving it along, they just digitally removed the car. But, um, and yeah, they had um, it attached to big giant wires and cranes so it could kind of swing through the city that way. It's really amazing what they're able to achieve. So 
That's why they needed a quarter of a billion dollars just because no one's like, we're going to do everything for real yeah. <laughs> instead of on the computer. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I would say that's what kind of gives these movies a timeless feel to them because they mm -hmm. don't rely on any, they will only rely on CGI when they absolutely must rely on CGI. Mm -hmm. And you really can't tell when they actually do use it. Um, too often in his movies. And so it was really cool to see a lot of these practical effects, but especially with the bat that um, is actually flying in the air, which normally they would probably use some kind of CGI to portray that. So it makes these films kind of give a more timeless feel to them because they are using practical effects and doesn't make them feel very cheap because again, they're using those practical effects to portray some of these things. It, I think that's why uh, Christopher Nolan um, is as insane as he is, where he'll put, uh, he'll actually do these things physically with the planes and the opening. Uh, or next movie, we'll see he'll attach an IMAX camera to a Learjet. So he does all these crazy, insane things, but at the expense of giving that great cinematic experience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons people go to see Nolan films is not necessarily for these three hour long stories per se, mm -hmm. but because they know they're going to get a solid cinematic cinematic experience that not many other directors truly deliver in right. such a draw-dropping, visceral, realistic way. And even though I know with all the COVID going on, I still think Tenant is going to do well at the box office because I think if anybody's going to get people to come back, it's going to be the director of the Dark Knight trilogy. Oh, yeah. And yeah. re-watching these films, reviewing them leading up to Tenet, is really getting me hyped up for this new movie to see, okay, what's Nolan going to do next? What's his new film going to be like? It's very exciting. Now, for this opening of the film, I think it was smart to set it eight years after, nearly a decade after The Dark Knight. Right. When I first saw it, I was very surprised, but I think it's very smart. And this time around, with my SSG goggles on, I was truly able to appreciate the fallout of Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and how we can see how that's all kind of come to an end here mm -hmm. in the opening of this film because they're talking a lot about how uh, how they have finally cleaned up the streets. And I know that was a big issue with the end of Batman Begins was Arkham Asylum had basically overrun the Narrows, had flooded the city, and now they're able to use the Dent Act to clean up the streets with all of these criminals. Well, that is a dam they have kept at bay, but is going to burst very soon. But nevertheless, I think Nolan does a fantastic job of really tying things up here within the first act and making it cohesive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the first thing that we see is them having like some kind of memorial for Harvey Dent. And if you've seen the last movie, you know that they used the death of Harvey Dent or they were they had planned on using the death of Harvey Dent to uh Instead of showing the truth of what happened, where he at the end of his life he turned completely a complete 180 because of the oh, because of the Joker, they decided to use his death uh, for something different. Uh, they decided to take it for a more uh, positive angle and hopefully use that to take control of crime in the city. And it immediately begins with that because that's kind of going to be the main topic of why of the downfall of Gotham City when Bane takes over is that, and he does come out and say this at one point too, they've built up Harvey Dent's character and all, and the Dent Act and everything relating to that, all of it's built up on a lie because they set out to reveal to the public that 
what happened to Harvey Dent? He died a hero. But in reality, that's not the complete truth. Um, they try to they spin that in a way so that way the city won't fall back on itself is their is their idea. Well, we get to see how that plays out in the movie. And I like that this is the first thing the movie opens with is this memorial to Harvey Dent, where we know that what they're saying about him isn't isn't the complete truth. And I really appreciate, yeah, that Dent's legacy looms large, but also the legacy left by Ra's al Ghul and even the Joker is, even though they're not in this film, all of their fallout and impact is still felt, at least within the first act of this film, yeah. and even probably comes to fruition later on. And that's something that I always took issue with previous to these reviews is, I kind of felt there was, and I still do feel in some ways, there is a disconnect between the trilogy, especially between that first film, Batman Begins. It just, I feel like the movie about the Joker almost feels standalone in a way. It doesn't quite feel cohesive since this film is going to tie so much into Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows. Yeah. But nevertheless, I can see how they all are kind of a domino effect where Ra's al Ghul released Arkham Asylum and he basically allowed the Joker to come to power. Well, well, Batman did by not st stopping Ra's al Ghul. Right. And so we see the Joker create sheer chaos and the Joker creates Harvey Dent. And Harvey Dent is used as a tool pretty much to clean up the streets. And, but that all comes bursting open when the League of Shadows in some ways kind of comes back to really undo everything. And so really looking at that here, especially within the first act, I can see how the trilogy is connected. Yeah, there's definitely a connection to each of the movies. And I would say that there's also enough that they explain in each of the ones to kind of get you up to speed with what happened before, but also not as, not as many threads holding it back to any other movies, that it kind of makes each one of these in some ways a standalone film. Yeah. And that's something we don't see a whole lot nowadays um, is where if there's going to be a sequel planned, then they'll use the first movie to as like the first act. They'll build everything up, um, but they don't do a, whole, a very good job at making it its own standalone film. Um, so that's something I really appreciate with these with this uh, Dark Knight trilogy is that each one of these films are pretty standalone. There are def and you did you do definitely get some more out of it if you watch the other ones, but you can probably watch Dark Knight Rises without having to watch the other two and not really miss a whole lot because it is pretty standalone. Now, obviously it does harken back to those previous two movies more so than the other ones did themselves, but it is still somewhat standalone all in itself, which I do appreciate. I also like the inclusion of Selena Kyle and how she is woven into this plot because she wants to steal Bruce Wayne's fingerprints in order to get the clean slate from Daggett. Right. And Daggett, what is, I don't, I don't feel like it's ever too clear what they want to use the fingerprints for. Right. So they I use, just missed it. Right. So they use the fingerprints that, you know, that stock exchange scene um, uh -huh. where Bane infiltrates it and then buys up a bunch of stock. Right. So he uses uh, Bruce's fingerprints to put those shares that he just bought under his name. Um, oh. That bank that and that bankrupts Wayne Enterprises. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I see now. But nevertheless, I do think they do weave her character into it well. How she's stealing from him. She wants the clean slate. 
Wayne has the clean slate. She is just kind of scrappy fighter who is kind of like a Batwoman in many ways. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she's I do like how no one always grounds these characters. Um, and I do appreciate she has a redemptive arc. She is never quite sure what side she will land on. And I do like her kind of forgiveness moment because she betrayed Batman and she finds out it's Bruce Wayne and she kind of bears that guilt of, well, I kind of helped plunge Gotham into probably total annihilation. Right. And you can see how she was very excited about toppling the rich. And then when it all happened, she's like, oh gosh, this is not exactly how I thought it was going to go. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think of her character? Yeah, I do enjoy that she's kind of stuck in the middle between the extremes of Bane as the bat, as the antagonist and Batman as the protagonist. So it is it is interesting to see how she kind of manipulates her way through the plot um, for almost the entire runtime. Um, and of course, her character she has a, a pretty she has a pretty um, dirty pass is what they call it. And this clean slate is going to completely wipe that away from her. So I do like that at the very end too. When she has the clean slate and she has already opened up a tunnel for herself to leave, she decides not to go through with it and decides to do the right thing, ends up landing on Bruce's side when the whole time she's kind of flip-flop back and forth. Um, So it is interesting to see that, you know, this week also rides on that, you know, the the revelation of truth. Bane uses that to corrupt and Batman tries, was going to try and use it for the good. Um, And we do get to see how when she's given this clean slate which could wipe away what she's done her true like the truth of what she has done can be wiped away she decides that no i'm not going to go through with it after you know learning going through that character arc of her character being you know kind of sly and a cat burglar so i enjoy that her character's in it because it kind of is the middle it's the middle man between these two extremes um when it comes to bane and batman and it is nice that she's given a significant role in saving Gotham considering she was key in actually causing it to get into that mess. Yeah. Now, no one makes, I think, a lot of shocking choices concerning characters in this movie that I don't think a lot of people were necessarily expecting at the time because it goes against type. It really yeah. goes against what we know and expect from these Batman characters, particularly the character of Alfred. Yeah, because I think he leaves like, what, about an hour into the film? Yeah, he is, he is, I would say, very pivotal within the first act, and he doesn't return until the very end of the film. Yeah, yeah, he, once he leaves um, Bruce, once he leaves Bruce, he doesn't come back until that very, like, almost the last scene. Actually, no, it is the last scene. (laughs) Yeah, it is the last scene, but it's fascinating because Alfred has always just been you know, helping Bruce out with the gadgets or whatnot. He is always seemingly on board or he might have some kind of, you know, roll your eyes type of comment when Bruce is doing the Batman. But this Alfred is much more meaningful. He's saying, I always wanted a better life for you. I didn't want you to have to be the savior of the world and destroy your life for it just because of the tragedy of your parents and Mm -hmm. let, and eventually the tragedy of Rachel and especially that that's the breaking moment when Alfred does tell him the truth of Rachel because Alfred chose to hide that from him, but he feels like um, he's become so reckless with his life and he needs to let the police do it. He needs to let the government step in 
Bruce being a vigilante that oh that time is over, especially because his body just can't really take it anymore. Right, right. And then Bane ultimately literally breaks Bruce's body. But I got to say, I love how Nolan wrote Alfred in here and how Bruce and Alfred break. And I think that's a pivotal because Bruce needs to learn to pick himself up by mm. himself. His dad's not going to be there. Alfred's not going to be there. He has to climb, literally climb out of that pit by himself. Right. Yeah, this is definitely a journey solely for Batman Bruce Wayne to go on. And we that is definitely realized when when uh, Alfred leaves. And I love this conversation that they have because Alfred reveals to him the truth about Rachel, which he chose to hide in the previous movie because he felt he wasn't ready for it yet. Or, you know, he wasn't ready to hear it. And so when it comes to it and he finally says, okay, here's the truth about Rachel. She was going to marry Harvey Dent. She was not going to, she didn't want to be with you. And there was a letter and I burnt that letter because you weren't ready for it yet. And he says this to try and stop him. He said, and he even says, I am, uh, Bruce even mentions this as well in this conversation. He says that essentially, I'm willing to rip our relationship apart in order to save you. This is the truth about Rachel and you need to know it to hopefully stop uh, Bruce Wayne from going through with his plan. Now it doesn't, um, unfortunately, and Alfred does leave and they kind of leave on bad terms. But I like that idea that uh, Alfred is willing to trash or is willing to leave the relationship in a very broken state, but is willing enough to tell him the truth, which is exactly what he needs to hear. And it was a nice kind of emotional connection with even the first film, because I don't think I ever picked up on this before is during those seven years that Bruce was gone um, in jail and then training with the League of Shadows. We never knew what Alfred was doing that whole time, aside from keeping Wayne Manor from getting too dusty, I guess. Right. But we learned that Alfred was going to this restaurant um, in in like France or Spain or something. And he was always hoping that he would see Bruce there with a wife and kids. Um, and then, of course, during that time, Bruce is legally declared dead. Right. And... Uh, he's just always wanted that life for him because in a way, Bruce was his son. He raised him. And I think that's why it's so meaningful at the end that Bruce and Alfred reconcile. Bruce does get his happy ending with Selena, who is very uh, akin to him in many ways, but yet at the same time, opposites attract right. because that's what they are. And I think that's just a very nice way of closing out all of their uh, character arcs there at the end. Yeah. So although in some ways this ending, it is a happy ending. And I feel like that's probably necessary for these very tragic characters. And for, I would say overall, a very dark trilogy. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be very, very, very becoming to leave this on a dark note per se. Um, yeah. yeah. But when we do see that, I found that to just be a nice emotional connection. Alfred finally does decide to show up and he does get to see Bruce and they don't exchange any words. And that's the end of their, that's the end of their clothes. Maybe some people will see that as sappy, but I personally liked it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of cool to see, you know, Bruce Wayne finally is able, cause we know that, uh, he's been a recluse for about, eight years 
right? Or actually, I guess it wasn't eight years, but, but it's been a few years because after the project went south, he went in and just went into, right into hiding um, for as Bruce Wayne. But now he's finally able to break free from that and is able to live kind of as a life, a normal life finally, when now knowing that the Batman has completely fulfilled its purpose in Gotham City. He died, the Batman died for his city. Kind of nice to see that he finally gets to live somewhat of a normal life. Um, you know, finally, after so many years of portraying the Batman to his city. Now, what do you think of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Blake? What do you feel about his character throughout this movie? Right, so Officer Blake is, is he's an interesting character because he, he doesn't go through a whole lot of change. Um, he starts out with an ideal and that is he knows, he's trying to portray true justice and he knows who the Batman is. He figures out who the Batman is pretty quick. Um, but he never really, he never really, I guess, questions that, right? His character always stays true to exactly what the Batman stands for, right? And so it's definitely fitting for his character to, at the end, kind of take up somewhat of the Batman mantle, Um because his character stands exactly for what the Batman stands for. And so it's kind of cool to see, you know, that he is also an orphan. Uh, he grew up in an orphanage, um, but he didn't have the luxury that, that Bruce had. He had to kind of survive on his own. And was finally, when he was finally released, he became a police officer to justify or to, to serve justice to those people. And then eventually is upgraded to detective for uh, under the wing of, uh, of Commissioner Gordon. So yeah, his character is definitely um, his character definitely makes sense to be the I guess the heir of Batman to be the ne like the next Batman in a few ways. Of course, you become Robin, but yeah, that his character definitely makes sense in the story to pick up the pick up where Batman left off. I do find it interesting that Bruce Wayne, even though going through the hardships, these kind of self inflicted hardships as a young man, and then even still training with the League of Shadows. He is still soft in many ways. He still hasn't had that. Uh, Alfred calls it the the he's driven. Bane is driven by belief, or he has like this ferocity of belief. Mm. Batman really doesn't seem to have that per se. He seems to try and take on this Christ-like symbol, but it's just too much for him. He hasn't really gone through the trials, so that's why I like that Blake is a constant in this movie. I think we have enough dynamic character arcs where characters are going undergoing drastic changes yeah. in their situations. Blake is the nice constant. He is the almost uh, unbelievable uh, symbol of hope where he's always kind of met with like skepticism. Like the special forces guy is like, do you really believe in Batman? Do you really think he's coming back? He's always the thing where it's like, we need something to believe in. We need hope. And he even challenges Commissioner Gordon about lying about Harvey Dent. And he's saying it doesn't matter if it seemed to be the right thing to do. You can see how these consequences have now come to fruition. Right. Basically, right. it's all going to come back to haunt you, even though you thought it was the right thing. So I like his character as the constant. I like his emotional connection to Bruce Wayne, how he could see behind Bruce's mask, which in the first film, Rachel says, your true mask is the one you use as Bruce Wayne. Right. Right. And Blake as a kid could or a teenager could see that as well. And uh, I think Levitt's introduction is nice. I'm glad that Nolan brings back. He brings back Marion Cotier, Levitt, 
Michael Caine, forgot his name there for a minute. Yeah, and he'll be, and, and Michael Caine will be here for many movies to come. He will never go away. He will live forever. And he also brings back Tom Hardy. Um, so he brings back f- four people yeah. from Inception to come on board with this. And that's all, that's what he wanted all along. Um, when his brother and, um, well, David S. Goyer is actually back to give some at least script consulting ideas. He said, why don't we do Bane? And no one's like, are you kidding me? He's, he's like a cartoon. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, we'll make him realistic. It's okay. And the same thing with Catwoman. So I know his brother and Goyer really put him in a bind with these villains, trying to ground these villains in reality. But I would say for the most part, he did a pretty good job of making these into more realistic characters. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's also fitting too, because we we noted from Batman Begins that uh, the one of the factors to of making Batman was at a moment in Bruce's childhood when he was the most afraid is when he fell down uh, that well in his backyard. And of course, there were a bunch of bats and his daddy came down to save him, right? And it's kind of fitting too, because in this movie, he's put in a pit very, very oh, similar yes. in style to the one that he was in with the bats back when he's a kid. But this time it's a bit different. This time uh, he has to pull himself out. He doesn't have his dad to come down and save him anymore. In fact, he can't even, in order to get out of the pit, he can't even use the rope that saves him if he misses the jump, right? He has to make a leap of faith on his own to get up to the top to finally save his city. So it's interesting to make that very interesting callback to the original where it's very, very similar pit, but the circumstances are much greater this time around because he has a very limited time to make it out of the pit to save his city and become Batman again for them. Um, but he, of course, ends up doing that. Uh, it's definitely, he Bane has, he even says that I didn't put you here to break your body. I put you here to break your soul, which is even more dangerous than one's uh, body breaking. Yeah, I, I love all of those scenes as well, how they're mostly focused on Bruce evolving as a character and mm. evolving as a man. And I know that was kind of something Raz Ghul always knocked him for is you're just kind of playing dress up and running around with your fancy gadgets. Yeah. And that's you're, you think that's going to save people. You think that's going to make you a redeemable person, but it's not. And I do love how Bane breaks his body and strips him of everything. And the one thing that I will say that Bane does very well as a character in this movie is he is the catalyst for change, yeah. for true change. He is going to bring Gotham to its knees. He's going to bring Bruce to his knees, literally break everything. And because Gotham has been constantly trying to figure out, they've been trying to just put a gum against a dam that's about to burst. They're trying to patch the holes that way. Mm-hmm. And eventually everything has to have this true change as well. And there is some really great um, writing within those scenes about how you don't give in to fear, but you basically let fear, you basically have to overcome fear by just staring it down in the face. You have to make the climb without the rope. And I know that pit was used in the promotional material and you could see him climbing out of the pit. And I'm like, that is one of the other reasons. I'm like, oh my gosh, what this imagery is amazing. I can't wait to see. Oh, yeah. What all Nolan does with this, I have no idea where he's going. But yeah, I would say thematically, that's what the second act is for. 
is to focus on the major themes of these characters and them having to come to grips with everything. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it, it's in some ways kind of scary to see Bane do exactly what the Joker and Raza have tried to do in past movies. He's finally the thing to um, essentially rip Gotham almost completely to shreds. And it's only by, only barely by Batman who ends up saving it. But it, it's, it's thematically it's interesting too because uh, he completely strips away all of the societal rules, right? He takes everything away. Um, where the everyone who's in power is pretty much they're at this point they're fearing for their lives because you never know when Bane's men are going to show up because they're not they're not doing any much. Uh, he sections them off from the rest of the world, um, so they can so they can essentially just riot and eventually destroy themselves. Uh, and so it's interesting to see that this that Bane has finally fulfilled or try has come closest to fulfilling exactly what Ra's al Ghul and uh, and Joker have done before. Something I appreciate is instead of Bane trying to bring Batman into the fold once again of the League of Shadows, and instead of having the Joker kind of playing some really psychotic manipulation games to achieve the end of just utterly corrupting Batman. Bane is more so the true believer and Batman is like the heretic or the apostate who mm -hmm. has left the League of Shadows and who has worked against uh, the work of the organization to bring balance to the world, essentially. And that's why Bane isn't interested in talking to Bruce or anything. He just basically has this one track mind and him and his people are completely willing to die in the nuclear explosion. And they're completely yeah. expecting it as well. But first, they do have to bring Gotham to the complete edge of despotism. And the one thing that is standing in their way is the return of Batman. And Bane, I love how Bane just makes quick work of him. He's yeah. not going to toy with them. He's just going to completely break his body. And while he's doing that, he's showing Batman everything that's wrong with him. And not just destroying his body, but also just destroying his like character psychologically, just destroying him. And I do appreciate how Bane is better than Batman. And the true catalyst, the true change has to come within Bruce. So I think that's a very gutsy move is to have nearly a three hour Batman movie with Batman only in maybe like 30 minutes of it. I don't know, 40 yeah. minutes of it because it, it takes 45 minutes before Batman comes back in the suit. Yeah. And I clocked it, I checked, and I gotta say, when he does come back, I had a smile on my face. I'm like, oh, you you teased us just the right amount. It was so worth it. And it's great mm -hmm. to see him come back, and then he loses against Bane, and then he doesn't come back till the end until we have the big brawl in the streets. So for most of this movie, Batman's not really here. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that no one just had to do that because, again, it is a Batman movie. But what I think is also more interesting is Bane is most definitely more powerful physically than Batman is. And that's, of course, very, uh, very potently portrayed when they finally meet for the first time in the tunnels. And Bane pretty much, pretty easily um, takes down Batman and uh, gets him to a point where he's essentially 
he essentially can't is immobile because of he's he broke his back. And what he's saying is what he says to him is that I was wondering what would break first, your spirit or your body. And of course, his body is the first thing to go. But when it comes down to it, um, even though Bane has that mask that keeps the, as they say, it, it keeps the pain at bay because of what happened in the pit. Um, we do get to see how easily he's taken down. When Batman goes for the mask and one of those pipes breaks, uh, Bane is pretty much at that point, he's completely incapacitated and Batman has no trouble taking him down. And it's it's kind of ironic that uh, this character who is this muscular and this big and is physically uh, overpowering of Batman is taken down so easily because of a few punches to his mask when the when the hoses kind of separate. It is fascinating when Bane is kind of shown to be not the invincible monster he sets himself up as within the first act. And that is interesting that he is not the mastermind behind everything either. And it is kind of interesting Bane is exposed to be more of a thorn in Batman's side and not necessarily his complete match, the complete villain. And Bane is just driven by, mostly driven by hatred and by this like very straight ideological goal. And the only thing better than that is Batman making the climb himself out of the pit. Bruce Wayne does. And basically Bruce learns to become a man. He really does take his father's place. He is able to pick himself up and he really fully appreciates what his father, what Alfred did for him. And then he learns why he wants to fight for the city and fight for those he loves within it, even if he will lose them and even if he will lose himself in the process. Um, the other thing is I, I found it very interesting that a couple other themes is once again, the Christ metaphor isn't absent from this film. Yeah. And we noted that in the last film that there was kind of this very much atonement uh, theology present of the Batman. It's like the Christ figure taking on the sins of the world, even though he didn't commit them or doesn't deserve them, but he's doing it for the greater good. Now, if that was if the Dark Knight was Christ on the cross, then this movie is Christ in the tomb in the resurrection. Yeah. It's unmistakable how he is thrown into the pit. There's even an Old Testament verse in Psalms about how Jesus hung in the pit. It literally mm -hmm. uses those words. And then how he, after a certain period of time, after he is seemingly dead, after this, after seemingly the savior of Gotham is defeated, he does return in full force and right. comes back to save everything. I, I think that's unmistakable. Yeah, no, absolutely. That I think in a lot of superhero movies do use a, uh, I, a lot of Christ visuals or themes relating to that. Um, so it's not, nothing new, but yeah, you are correct. It is very unmistakable that there is more, somewhat of a Christ narrative in this piece, especially with the character of Batman being the savior of Gotham, um, comes, you know, it's thrown, again, like you said, thrown into the pit and then escapes that same pit. Yeah, no, there's an unmistakable, uh, there's unmistakably messianic themes. And you could even, if you wanted to go so far as once, uh, Batman does leave Gotham for good. He doesn't leave the people alone. He sends a helper as well. He sends Robin as could be interpreted as the third key to that puzzle. Good. And, you know, of course, the father figure, Alfred, 
Batman's actual dad, whatever, though that's unmistakable there as well. Now, something that I find to be quite surprising is that Nolan, this movie is fairly conservative in its kind of like economic and political stance as well, because Bane is, this is like pure communism. I mean, talking about toppling the rich. I mean, it's straight out of the communist manifesto. Bane's first public attack is on Wall Street, aka capitalism. And his whole goal is to topple the government. They have these kangaroo courts led by uh, Crane. Cillian Murphy is back also from Inception and the previous trilogy. So I I thought that was a really nice uh, inclusion of his character as well. But this is straight up communism. The prisons are opened up. It's just pure anarchy. And then he pits that against like the individualistic freedom of these individual people rising up against the collective. It's basically individualism versus the collective. So shockingly conservative, especially since Hollywood doesn't tend to lean more towards that conservative type side. But nevertheless, no one really does depict communism as evil here. So I I thought that was cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's also pretty unmistakable that uh, Bane is definitely somewhat of a symbol for communism because of what he because of what he does to Gotham um, and his plans for just kind of throwing them into this pit of fear. Mm -hmm. That being, you know, there's a truck running around the city with the atom bomb in it. Oh, when one of you has one the the detonator, but I won't tell you who has the detonator. Um, The only guy who can fix the bomb is dead now because I killed him. So it's it's also interesting to see how fearful he makes the city, um, kind of turning the city on itself. So it's like a mix of communism and anarchy because everything's at the time that Bane assumes control, everything's taken down. So it's again kind of scary to see no one, um, no one kind of showing the effects of communism and anarchy in a lot of ways, and that kind of come to fruition the city. But of course, America and democracy kind of overpower this in the end. Yeah, that is fascinating, especially when some of the talking points of Bain reflect some of our political leaders about bringing down the 1% mm-hmm. and a lot of this equality and fairness type stuff. It does become eerie when you see it in the movie and then you turn on the TV and you and you hear uh, political leaders saying similar things. You're like, oh, oh hmm. Yeah. But, uh, okay, one of my last compliments for this movie is, gratefully, characters aren't exposition dumps quite as much, I would say, as yeah, we've noted, Yeah, we've noted that, um, especially in Dark Knight and especially in Batman Begins, they are kind of exposition dumpers, mm-hmm. and that's their dialogue. And we've also seen that no one has gone better at this, making it not so clunky. Um, but kind of working it into the story a bit more organically. Um, so yeah, this thankfully is uh, getting still getting better. Um, that's still some, of course, which it's still understandable because of how complex and how many moving parts there are of the story. But yes, he is, I agree with you, getting better at uh, writing exposition in a dialogue and making it not so clunky as it has in previous films. It's still there, but it's much better than it has been. I did appreciate though... There is a very big exposition dump with Talia Ghoul basically explaining to every everything to Batman and she stabs him with the knife. Yep. But I did like that there was that flashback of 
Raza Ghul, speaking of the wife he lost. I forgot mm. all about that. So I'm, I was grateful at least for that reminder. Usually I'm not too keen on flashbacks, although I loved the flashbacks in the beginning of Harvey Dent as Gordon is trying to read the speech and all I can think of is Harvey holding the gun to his son's head. That yep. was effective yep. as well. But I did think, oh man, okay, well that makes me feel better about bringing Talia Ghoul into this is that kind of dropped line in the first movie where just that throwaway line about the wife he lost and mm -hmm. kind of the life he never had. I uh, thought that was well done. Now, I do have one question here. Did you think Batman did actually die in the end of this movie when you when you first saw it? I don't remember. Uh, if I remember right, I think I did. I, I wanted to say that the that the Bruce that we see at the end maybe was more of a vision from Alfred. Um, mm. That was kind of my original thoughts on it because I didn't exactly understand what they were saying. Like, oh, the autopilot was fixed six months ago with the software patch or whatever. And I was like, what? what? I don't, because they briefly mentioned the autopilot and how it was broken on the bat, uh, on the bat. So I was a bit confused with the ending. Mm -hmm. um, it makes a bit more sense now seeing it, but he, I don't think now he necessarily died, um, but uh, the symbol of Batman is dead, right? The hero of Batman, the guy who's been in the cape all this time, he is dead, but Bruce Wayne, the man behind the mask, He's not. He's living a normal life now. So that's kind of my, my interpretation of it. Yeah. When I did first see the movie in theaters, I was so emotionally gripped by the fact that Batman was going to die in the end of this mm. movie. It was going to be a somber ending. The legacy of Batman, this this larger than life uh, kind of superhuman was able to save Gotham and stop a nuclear bomb from detonating on U.S. soil. Yeah. Um, so I, I was very emotionally enthralled by that fact. But then once you learn the autopilot was fixed, then that's kind of when the smile starts to turn on your face. And then yep. it cuts to Alfred and you see him kind of nod to each other. But yeah, for a moment there, I thought, wow, Batman is going to die in this movie because that kind of never really ever happens. And I thought Nolan, of course, would do this. It is the gutsy choice. It's the more realistic choice in a way. But as we mentioned earlier, I don't think it would be very pleasing to have these tragic characters just have tragic endings and not have any sort of, you know, happy fulfillment in their life whatsoever. So right. I do appreciate the ending that we get. But... I do have uh, quite a few issues with this movie, actually. I've been mm. hiding it this whole time. <laughs> yeah, this is... It's an interesting movie because uh, you would assume that being Christopher Nolan and being that it's the third film in a, in a trilogy, and he said that I'm not going to come back unless I know that the third film is going to be, be it's gonna be good, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to be invested in it as well. It's interesting that this film, I feel, has the most controversy surrounding it, mm. its story and how it plays out, at least with the fans. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I know too much about how the fans feel out, feel about it and the controversy involved with that. I do know that I think there are some pretty obvious issues with this movie. And it is hard because Nolan made what many consider to be the greatest film of all time, the perfect film with the dark knight he just yep. he did too much of a good job with the second film that he just had this nearly impossible bar to jump but 
Right. A couple of the f- aspects of this film that I did, I did find disappointing was the very murky details about Daggett trying to take over and the state of Wayne Enterprises, but more especially this clean, renewable energy that is kind of like pivotal to the movie. But I feel like the way it's introduced is just kind of a throwaway thing and how the scientist is necessary, but Lucius Fox can fix it. And they're giving it over to Miranda Tate, who really has no good character introduction whatsoever. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk about her in a second too. Yeah. So I, because he's talking about this energy project they worked on together and I'm dismissing it because they're trying Mm -hmm. to keep it so hidden and we don't learn about it until I don't know, at least over maybe an hour into the movie or something. And by that point, I'm like, oh, gosh, I guess I need to pay attention to to all of this. I don't know. It just gets really messy with the whole hostile takeover Daggett situation and Wayne losing his money. Ah, No one gets way too caught up in a lot of this stuff, I feel, for this three hour movie. Right. And I mean, okay, the clean energy project thematically makes sense because uh there are a lot of things that are you that are supposed to be good, but are used for something nefarious, right? Bane takes the truth of Harvey Dent and exposes that to only to continue to rip apart the city. Um, when Commissioner Gordon was going to say that for the right time to expose it. Um, and they've got the clean energy project, which is meant to, of course, as the name suggests, supposed to provide clean energy for however many houses for a city. Um, but come to find out Bane uses that to come, uh, to make essentially a nuclear bomb that just rides around the city. So the clean energy project, again, thematically it makes sense, but you are correct. They don't really explain a whole lot. Um, and I think it probably should have gotten a little bit more importance, um, because, uh, that is also the downfall of Wayne Enterprises and Bruce Wayne as well, getting to this point where he's essentially a complete recluse for um, for a number of years. So yeah, you're correct. They don't really explain a whole lot. They don't really explain like how it really works, except that, oh, it's got somewhat of a nuclear reactor in it. Right. Um, so, I mean, they don't necessarily have to, because that would just kind of go into like absurd detail, but you are correct. I, I do feel that there are some details in here that I wish were fleshed out a little bit more because this is a long movie and there's a lot of things to this very long movie. Um, so I would say it would just help if there was, I guess, some more clarification, especially on this one. Yeah. And it feels a little bit like Death Star redo twice from episode four and episode six, because in Batman Begins, Ra's al Ghul was using Wayne technology, the microwave emitter to destroy mm-hmm. Gotham. Now Bane is using new Wayne technology to destroy Gotham. I, I really hate that kind of, let's just kind of redo something we've already done, but in a slightly different way. And I will say kind of having the foil be just a nuclear bomb going to go off in the city, that makes this movie feel much more like a comic book. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I don't know how you feel about it. I think this is the most comic book-esque of the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you. The The nuclear bomb in the city um, is... <laughs> Well, it's definitely something that is more comic booky than the rest of the movie. Uh, again, it uh, kind of makes more a bit more sense because of you know this perversion of something good, right? 
Um, we know that America has a lot of nuclear bombs in a lot of places, and it's going to use essentially one of its own built there in America against itself. That's kind of, what I think, what no one's going for. Uh, but you are correct. It is still an atomic bomb, um, and it is still kind of... It's, it's bigger than, I guess, what I was expecting no one to go, mm-hmm. um, because it is, again, it's, it's, an, it's an atomic bomb. So... <laughs> yeah yeah i I agree with you it's 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 an i understand the choice that he made um but i i I do agree i think maybe this film because of its ambition it does get maybe a bit too far outside of i guess um i don't know i guess maybe a bit too far outside of itself yeah and i was also i don't think i'm alone in saying this bane is somewhat of a disappointing villain Okay, how, how so? I'm curious to know why, why you think that. I think the first of all disappointing aspect of him is I feel like he's underserved as just a character in general. He seems to be kind of the embodiment of an ideology. Um, and that's really so far as he goes. I do like how in some ways he's kind of this anti-Batman. Um, he was in the pit like Bruce and he was discarded by his surrogate father, Ra's al Ghul, whereas Bruce Wayne is basically the prodigal son. So they do kind of have that going for each other. But I just don't find him to be very... I think he has interesting aspects. I think none of those aspects are really explored. And especially mm-hmm. once the rug... It, the, the trick is he's not the child of Ra's al Ghul. He's basically just Talia al Ghul's enforcer and bodyguard. Right, and right. It's also kind of hard because coming off of the Joker as such this dynamic villain that played off of Batman so well and Bane is doesn't have very much time to play off Batman except in two scenes where they just fight it out at the end. And then I love Bane's lines in the sewers about how victory has defeated you and peace has weakened you like these great things have ultimately been your downfall. But there's just not a lot to him. I, I appreciate no one is preserving some of the mystery around this character because like Bane said, no one cared who I was until I put on the mask. But nevertheless, and at times I do feel like he comes across cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Like when he's talking in the stadium, I just don't feel the fear of that scene when they blow up the stadium. At first I'm like, oh, that's shocking. But then he just like snaps the guy's neck and he's like, I've got a bomb and I'm going to hold the city hostage. And I'm like, oh, this does feel kind of like a cartoon in, in many ways. And I do like the way he talks, but at the same time, I don't in other scenarios. And I think the the way he looks with his mask at times just kind of looks funny. I'm kind of done a 180 because I used to really love this character and in some ways i still do but i'm just recognizing that it's just he's kind of weak yeah no i i think that that kind of comes as just a side effect of uh the joker was the previous villain and of course the joker is kind of can kind of held up in such high regard for being almost the perfect villain against the hero so, I mean, this time around, it is different. Yeah, you're right. He is definitely an anti-Batman. He was born from somewhat of the same place. Um, he was trained under Ra's al Ghul um, in the League of Shadows. And so, it is, I think you're right, in terms of villainy, he feels not as big of a, uh, I guess, foil for Batman like the Joker was. Or it's not as enjoyable to watch 
as the Joker was because we, I think everybody um, is, I, I think everybody, I know that we um, definitely see the Joker as very in, entertaining to watch despite him being very sadistic in his, in his way of going about, uh, of course, the things that he believes in. So I would argue that, um, I, I do agree with you. I think that uh, Bane as a villain is a good villain, but not necessarily one, not necessarily the best of the trilogy because I think the Joker still takes that mantle. And it's very, very hard to tear that down from the Joker. Um, but I think that his villain, the way that his villain is written is about the same as what we've seen before. The backstory of these villains, they're not completely fleshed out like our main character is, and that's typical, um, not having as much of a backstory, but they're still very complex and very and still deep characters. They're not one-dimensional. They don't have nothing to them. Um, they all stand for some ideal, but also so does everything else in this movie. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think this villain is necessarily as memorable, but at the same time, that's also at the cost that the Joker is the only other uh, villain that you could compare him to. The one connection that I think they form is Bane is the one to destroy Batman. And that's kind of a very big deal, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the Bane, on the other hand, is the one that does cause the catalyst for change is if Bane can rise out of the pit and live this horrible, miserable, miserable life and then still have this really driven belief and bruce has always kind of struggled of what does he believe in what is his purpose and goal and bane just has that clear insight and he's able to achieve it without much trouble without much standing in his way he does seem to be the ultimate match and i appreciate that but i am kind of frustrated in some ways that no one undercuts bane's character and takes the wind out of his sails right there at the very end of the movie which yeah which i can't help but see that coloring my viewpoint looking back on his character throughout the film is that he's not really the mastermind and the dictator and you even see that during the courts when um crane says bane has no authority here he's really just there to be the bouncer he's the enforcer he is the muscle behind the whole project whereas talia ghoul is the real mastermind and we get some selective scenes of her trying to meet with Bruce Wayne. We, we have never met her character before. We know she is altruistic and she can be the heir to Wayne Enterprises because of the nefarious Daggett trying to have a hostile takeover. Right. But, and shockingly, they sleep together. I was pretty shocked to see that in this movie. But um, nevertheless, she is the subtle knife that has been there all along to take down batman because he's the one that murdered her father so i like that there at the end but we're not given enough time or emotional connection and then it's like what oh, oh yeah. okay yeah so before we get to her character uh i do want to say one last thing about bane because Bird. i do want to talk about his death real quick oh, um, and how he goes awful. out because uh, i've always been disappointed with it but i think looking back on it now I'm more okay with it than I have been before, although I'm not completely okay with it. Uh, so here's the reason why. Um, as I mentioned in the plot, or as I mentioned a bit earlier, when even though Bane is, as we said, more physically more superior um, than Batman is, uh, but he's taken out so easily because once 
Batman attacks his mask and the pipe starts snapping off. Uh, he's completely incapacitated, right? He can't do anything after that. And Batman very easily bests him once that happens. So when it comes to his death and it's just Catwoman drives him with the bat pie and shoots him. And that's, that's the last time that we see him. It kind of plays into that same thing where even though Bane looks very scary and looks like he can best you when it really, when, when you really break it down, eh, his, he comes, he goes out with a whimper, which is somewhat fitting of the ideal that he stands for, right? He he builds this up to completely rip apart everything, right? And is meant to be this facilitator of this complete change, but in this way that is totally against the American ideology. But when he's finally bests, he's taken out and he's it's, he dies with a whimper, right? So in some ways, I can understand what no one is going for here. Um, but you are very correct. The way that he got, the way that he goes out, the way that he dies is pretty unfulfilling because he's been built up this entire movie to be, um, you know, big bad. the thing that Batman has to go against and has to, who is essentially the complete opposite of him, but in some ways is even better. That one of those ways being the physical aspect. So it is kind of disappointing to see him just kind of go out all of a sudden um, when Catwoman shows up. And don't get me wrong. I think they have a cool final duel there at the end that is yeah. is fun to watch them duke it out there in the streets but in many ways bane becomes a video game boss where they can be very hard at first but once you learn their weak spot that's the spot you just have to continually attack until mm -hmm. they're destroyed and the other thing is big villains need to go out need to have a big going out i would say that is what is ultimately satisfying to the audience is we want to see this major bad guy who has utterly destroyed the city of Gotham, who has held it hostage yeah. with a nuclear bomb. He's been the only one that's able to go this far, achieve this much. And he is the resurgence of the League of Shadows. He broke Batman's back. And then Catwoman gets the final say by just shooting him. And then we're on to stopping the nuclear bomb, which... We learned Talia Ghoul and uh, the bomb are the true villains, which feels like a bait and switch there at the end. That's just not satisfying. I will never be okay with the way Bane ends with this movie when they built him up as the bad guy. And he has yeah. such a cheap way of going out. And it's just, I love how Batman says like, now you have my permission to die. I love that mm. it turns around. It, but I just, like I said, no one cuts undercuts it so fast, takes the wind out of its sails with taking him out. And not to mention, we have the clicking talk, clicking talk. <laughs> ticking clock scenario that we have to deal with as well. So right. I'm, I'm utterly disappointed with it. And uh, still one last thing about Bane. So young Bane, AKA young Talia, that is Joey King. That's the actress, Joey King. Um, the little girl in the pit that yes. is escaping. She's, she's a much, she has been in a lot more movies now. Yes. Most notably <laughs> wish upon. <laughs> oh gosh. No. <laughs> But I knew that was Joey King because I had already mm -hmm. seen her in Ramona and Beezus and maybe one other thing. So I was already familiar with her. So I wish no one would have cast a true unknown and a more androgynous looking child because that really confused me. I said, Joey King's a girl. Did they really get a girl to play a boy's part? Like how would that make sense? So well, I was kind of spoiled. I know I was kind of spoiled for that. So then when it was Talia, I'm like, well, yeah. I kind of was wondering because that Joey King is a female in that role. Right, right. And I mean, yeah, I'm not, 
who knows? There could be various reasons why Joey King was picked to portray Talia al Ghul. Um, but my main concern is how no one goes about this twist. Um, it's not told very well. Nope. Um, they kind of come outright and say, without really any refute, um, that it was Bane that was the one who climbed out of the pit until we find out later into the film when Talia literally tells Bruce that, no, I was the one who climbed out of the pit and Bane was the one who protected me and was it got me to a point where I could escape from the pit. Um, it's kind of a, it's a huge bait and switch because uh, there really wasn't anything that said maybe that's not the case in, at any point in the story. It's kind of just, just told to us and we accept it like anything else. Which in some ways, I guess that's kind of what no one, again, was going for where it it gets the knife that this is a slow knife that cuts the deepest is what they say where it's this thing that we don't realize is hurting us until it's too late um but the way that they go about that when it comes to talia's character that is i think a very disappointing probably one of the more disappointing aspects of this movie in general is that talia go who brenda tate's character as well uh who's connected to this We'll talk about her in just a second. Is kind of just disappointing with how it's all portrayed. And that's the word I would use for probably the second half of the film is the movie is just not the same once Bruce gets out of the pit. And I found this the opening of the film to be so well, I would even say the first half of the film is really strong. And then the second half of the film just isn't as strong. And I feel like it. I feel like we started so realistic and serious. The themes were strong. These characters were really coming to breaking points. And uh, yeah, there is that subtle knife of you think Batman being bad and Dent being good. The Dent Act has like really saved Gotham, but it's all been the undoing of it, which I, I appreciate how they're saying, ultimately, you guys made the wrong choice by not telling the truth. You caused more harm than good in the end when all is said and done. I love all of that. But then in the end, I just am worried that this movie becomes too much of a cartoon. It becomes too much of this just action movie with this giant brawl in the streets. And don't get me wrong, I like some of it, but I feel like the more uh, animated cartoon-esque aspects are just, they're too hard not to miss, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So, all right, let's talk about Miranda Tate's character, a.k.a. Taliel Al Ghul, like the actual Taliel Al Ghul. Um, her character feels like a la almost like a last-minute addition to the story because she plays a very, very important role to the story. She takes over Wayne Enterprises. She becomes someone, she becomes the love interest for Bruce Wayne. Um, then, of course, she ends up at the very end, surprise, twist, um, she's actually the one who climbed out of the pit. Uh, not not Bane. So her her character feels like she should be more important than the way that she's portrayed. Unfortunately, the way that she's portrayed, she feels like I said, kind of like an afterthought. Like it was she was added in way late into the script um, to be a character that plays throughout the story. Because I feel like there's more that she should be doing and more importance that should be portrayed for her character, but it's just missing. Oh yeah, it's a huge letdown, especially considering there needs to be more of an emotional connection between these two characters, between Bruce Wayne and Miranda Tate and Talia Ghoul and Batman. And there's just not, especially because no one is so worried about the bait and switch here at the end 
that he sets up Bane as the big bad. And then you come to realize Bane's kind of a nothing burger <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. And Talia Ghul is the real mastermind. She is the child of Ra's al Ghul. In the theater, I thought it was a great shock, but rewatching it, it just doesn't work. And I think how much more of a stronger connection would it be if there was this parallel Batman? And I know in the comic book, Talia Ghul is the real child. I know that from the comics that to keep in continuity with it, I guess they wanted to do it. I think it would have been smarter to have a Cain and Abel or um, Jacob and Esau going on here with these two kind of where Batman and Bane were kind of almost brothers in certain ways that had never really met each other. And they were trying to win the affection of their father, Ra's al Ghul. And Bane is the one that is going to fulfill his father's destiny, even though his father discarded him for Bruce Wayne, who he really thought would have been a better apprentice. And now we do kind of, and, and we do get that throughout the movie. It's just once again, all undercut and none of it comes to fruition. And I would have loved to have seen the parallel struggles of Bane growing up in extreme poverty in the pit and Bruce growing up in extreme affluence and wealth up on the hill in Gotham City. And I think that would have been such a nice parallel and tying together. But he's too worried about the content, like the continuity of the comic books and the twist. It's definitely disappointing. Yeah. And even with uh, Miranda's character, because when there's a scene when uh, she just randomly shows up at uh, Wayne Manor, or the new Wayne Manor yeah. um, when Bruce has locked himself up because Alfred has left. And they kind of develop a relationship here. Um, I, I know what no one's going for. He's <laughs> She's essentially Rachel 2.0, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty clear. Uh, she, although she doesn't necessarily have the same emotional impact as Rachel does, which I don't think no one was necessarily going for in the first place because you can't exactly build that up in one movie when Rachel had two. Um, besides the fact, that's what she is. She's Rachel 2.0, when, especially when it gets to this point in the story. The problem is uh, there's a loose connection between Bruce and her. Uh, whereas before, uh, we, noted, we noted that there's a strong relationship between Rachel and Batman, and Rachel was kind of the thing to keep Batman going until he wasn't needed anymore. He, she was the thing that was somewhat of, her, of his moral compass there in that first movie. So there's a strong emotional connection between the two of them. And when she dies in Dark Knight, Dark, the Dark Knight, it's it hurts our, it hurts Batman a lot. There isn't really a whole lot to Miranda Tate's character in this movie. Um, and that kind of goes against it because when it gets to the scene, when she just decides to just show up at Wayne Manor, um, it just kind of feels like, um, again, the execution of her character is not nearly as strong as I think that it should be or think that what anyone was going for. Yeah, it's not earned in many ways. And no one is, unfortunately, because he set this movie so far after the events of The Dark Knight. There's a lot of catch up to do because Miranda Tate's on the Wayne board and Daggett is on the Wayne board. Neither of them were in the previous two films. So somehow these two philanthropists or whatever you want to call them have come on the scene and they are causing trouble. I feel like Daggett is also mostly just kind of this like red herring thorn in the side distraction who he does die and is ultimately, ultimately a meaningless character. 
um, aside from he was kind of the useful idiot that brought Bane to Gotham. And I, I feel like those consequences, the weight of those are never really played out. Mm -hmm. um, and Miranda Tate, yeah, I mean, that's something that I just don't like about this movie is also some of the editing of how these characters are introduced or how characters yeah. come together. It's yeah. just like, I, I, in some ways I like that we're just being dropped into this world eight years later, but in other ways, I don't think we're sufficiently caught up as to all the character connections because we know Wayne and Tate were working on this clean energy project for a long time, but I just feel like she's never even met him before when she wants to see him and he won't see her at the, the party in the very beginning of the movie come to realize right. they've been working together and he just doesn't want to see anybody. Um, yeah, uh, I just, I don't like it. And I don't like how they do end up sleeping together. And that just feels out of, I understand, I guess they're both single and lonely and want companionship, but it just comes out of left field. Um, I guess he's over Rachel now. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, I mean there is, of course, the connection there because she, I think, no, he grabs a picture of Rachel um, and Brenda's like, she was important to you, wasn't she? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and they start kissing. <laughs> but, you're, but you're prettier now, I guess. Yeah. For me, when it comes to editing, um, I think that the, honestly, the first act for me is way choppier than the rest of the movie. And yeah, I understand partially why they're introducing Brenda Tate, Daggett, Bane, Officer about Blake. Twenty thousand characters introduced. Exactly. They're introducing <laughs> they're introducing probably about ten or fifteen characters, some of which are returns, some of which are brand new. A lot of them are new. Um and it makes this it makes this opening feel really, really choppy because we're just going back and forth, introducing character after character after character. Um and when it doesn't take it doesn't get into till after the first act is finished when the movie I feel finally finds its footing and feels a bit more uh, more seamless with how it's edited, but that opening, honestly, for me, the, oh, the first act is the, the weaker of the three because of how many characters it's introducing and how it's kind of edited. Um, it just feels like we're rushing to get everything ready to go and finally get the, the story kickstarted. And we never get sufficient time to really learn about anybody, honestly, in this movie sufficiently enough, I would say, because we've got too much we do know character motivations at least at least mm -hmm. vague ones but there's not a lot of time to connect i would say at least we get time to connect with the mainstays and with blake so i appreciate that as well but eh, there no one's biting off a lot with the beginning of this movie you're right um the one last negative is the brawl in the streets in the end is ambitious and in many ways a very awesome action scene just as long as you focus on Bane and Batman and you don't look at the surrounding fighters because you can tell it's just all choreographed and they're just really pulling their punches. It, it looks pretty fake. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. noticed that. I guess I never did take a look at the background. I'm, I'm next time I watch it, I'll, I'll have to see yeah. what, uh, what exactly was going on. One thing positive that I did forget to mention is Hans Zimmer's score, I would say, oh, yeah. is I personally my favorite of the Dark Knight trilogy. I think this is his best score. He does a lot of unique things that I hadn't heard in previous uh, ones. I really like um, Catwoman's theme in this movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say the overall score is dynamic. There are some returns here with the score, but overall, I'd say it's, it's better than last time, actually. Yeah, I would say that the Dark Knight and this one are absolutely comparable. Uh, I mean, it's Hans Zimmer. 
even even <laughs> that movie begins all the scores written for all three of these movies are very well done which is no surprise because it's Hans Zimmer who always always does a good job so yeah no I agree with you they are the scores throughout these these movies are very very good the one last negative that I have of this movie is that of the, the portrayal of Gotham City because as we noted in the Dark Knight um especially the Dark Knight and I think we may mention it in Batman Begins, but the portrayal of Gotham City is he no one makes it out to be somewhat of a character in and of itself, along with our mainstays here. This one I feel it's kind of lacking in how it's portraying Gotham City. And there are a lot of characters in this story, as we just are talking about. Um, but I do I don't feel, I guess, as I the Gotham City is as desperate as it was in the Dark Knight when the Joker took over, because we don't ever really cut away to citizens reacting to things in in the city. Like in The Dark Knight, there the ferry boats were a big portion of the of the ending and how the the citizens of Gotham City, those who are criminals and those who are regular citizens, how they react to a certain situation. So that really helped out build a character of Gotham City there at that last in the last moments of that movie. But in this one, we never really have that. We have a little bit, but it's mostly just all these main characters um, doing things, but not necessarily seeing the effects of that when it comes to the city. I found that to be interesting this time around that the portrayal of Gotham City is kind of absent in this one where it was a mainstay from the last two movies. I'll digress with you a little bit on that because I think what Nolan tries to do at least is give us a vision of those who are holding on to hope and those who are kind of okay with the despotism or very concerned about it at the very least, because we do see Blake going around and trying to interact with the police officers underground, interacting with the boys home and how the boys home is like, they don't have TV. They don't really have a lot of amenities. And then Catwoman is also our insight where this is the storm she talked about, but it's not the one she ultimately wanted. And we do get mm -hmm. to see how people are thrown out onto the streets and there's these crazy kangaroo courts going on and people are being exiled. But I will agree with you in some sense that the desperate feeling of the city just isn't there. It isn't really among the citizens and you're right. Yeah. It is um, lacking. And I would say it is a noticeable loss because Batman begins had a very unique look at what Gotham looked like. Um, and I would say even just the look of Gotham has kind of changed between Batman Begins and these two Dark Knight films. Um, Batman also had that moment where he stopped and talked with that little boy and he gave him that telescope. And that does give you little peeks into what a life is like with these people of Gotham. Like you said, the people on the ferry boats as well. Um, ordinary citizens were rising up trying to be like Batman in the Dark Knight. Um, the Joker was like uh, blowing up judges. We got to see what it was like in court. So, the, yeah, the city really is given a backseat here. And even though the whole city does plunge into despotism, I never feel it's quite as bad as no one is hoping will think it is or is trying to show it as. I just feel like it's not totally obliterated. It does feel like a little bit more authoritarian lockdown, which is also something that's kind of scary and has come true how we're all kind of in our own homes right now mm -hmm. and not really trying to go out like the citizens of Gotham are as well. But 
you can live in relative peace if you just kind of keep to yourself. So it's not like gangs have formed. Bane is still keeping some form of order. But you're right. Yeah. I do wish there was a bit more of that. I like that we get to see the police come back and help save the city again, the local law enforcement. And I like Gordon as well. But we don't have that emotional connection with Gordon's family. That's missing because we know that they left him. Yeah, uh, which is pretty sad, but kind of makes sense in some ways. So you're right. There are issues. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm actually super curious now what your rating for this movie is going to be. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Dark Knight Rises? The Dark Knight Rises, just like The Dark Knight, looks amazing, which is pretty typical for a Nolan film at this point. Um, and of course, has a great soundtrack. It, it's and it even it has really good script writing. I think that there are obvious issues with how the script is written out, mostly with Miranda Tate's character or how Bane's taken out. There are things that, that I don't like, um, and those are some of the things that I know a lot, a lot of people already take issue with. I still enjoy The Dark Knight Rises, um, and I would say that it is a fitting end to this Dark Knight trilogy. However, and it unfortunately does live in the shadow of The Dark Knight, and it's kind of impossible to make a next addition to a franchise, The Dark Knight franchise, without relating it to The Dark Knight if it came after it. And I think that's also kind of part of the issue is people are expecting the Dark Knight, but better, right? But I don't know if necessarily Nolan was going for something like that, where he wanted to do better than The Dark Knight. I think he wanted to tell something aside from The Dark Knight, um, even though the names are pretty much the same. So I enjoy it, but there are obvious, obvious issues with it that I find it to be not as enjoyable as the movie that came before it. And it is hard to not... It is hard to not look at this movie in the shadow of that other of, of his previous one. So, this is somewhat of a step back for Nolan in, in, in some in some ways in some aspects. But I would, in a lot of ways, he's still very much improving, which we also noted. So, seven out of ten. I'm still going to give it a pretty solid recommend. Um, I think that it is a pretty good capstone for this for this franchise, at the expense of some unfortunate miscomings. Um, and not as satisfying of a conclusion that I, or not as satisfying of a conclusion in some aspects um, that I think no one was kind of going for. The Dark Knight Rises is the epic conclusion to Nolan's ambitious redefining superhero trilogy. Smartly tying up all three films within the first act by addressing major story beats, then shifting focus to fulfill major themes, and finally rewarding audiences with large-scale action scenes for the third act, makes this the meatiest and most striking Batman film in Nolan's trilogy. Despite following in the footsteps laid out by the second film, The Dark Knight Rises gratefully moves into a lighter tone, while still maintaining a desperate atmosphere, not just of our main hero, but also those around him and the very city he fights for. While still grounding this film in reality, Nolan crafts his most comic book-esque Batman film, which I liked. Despite not seeing Batman for the first 45 minutes, when he did come on the scene, it gave me chills and brought a giddy childlike smile to my face. In an interesting move, Batman is largely absent for most of this film. Rather, Nolan chooses to focus on characters such as Bruce and Alfred's relationship and the reckoning of Bruce's previous decisions. 
I highly enjoyed this more character-driven journey. Unfortunately, our villain, Bane, is an underserved character, which once it is revealed Talia Ghoul is the real Puppet Master villain, Bane is seen more as an enforcer instead of our hero's true foe. In fact, no one goes for a more lofty approach at villainy, that being collectivism. With the Batman and local authorities out of decommission, society is left to despotism, thereby seemingly proving the point of Ra's al Ghul, Bane, the Joker, and Harvey Dent. That corruption had seeped so deep that only a little push was all that was needed to justify utter annihilation. Also, the third act somewhat falls apart thematically. Character reveals, particularly Talia's, aren't given enough play to have an emotional resonance. Some of the fight scenes look staged, and the film overall surprisingly takes on a less cinematic quality. That being said, The Dark Knight Rises is nevertheless a stellar conclusion to a powerhouse trilogy. In fact, this is likely my favorite of the three films. While The Dark Knight is still a stronger film, its heavy nature makes it hard to just settle in and rewatch multiple times. This movie, on the other hand, is a fun and meaningful Batman adventure. The Dark Knight Rises receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. You know, I kind of played with an 8, and it, my 7 is way closer to an 8 than it is a 6. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So you did, this is the second seven you've given in the trilogy. You did give Batman Begins a seven out of 10. Mm-hmm. We both, which we both gave it a seven out of 10. We both also gave The Dark Knight a nine out of 10. And just for reference, um, we both gave Inception a 10 out of 10, making it my favorite Nolan movie, maybe your favorite too. But nevertheless, I am curious about your rankings now of the trilogy because i'm not sure they're going to be quite the same so i'm curious what is your ranking of the trilogy yeah so my ranking is obviously number one is the dark knight then the dark knight rises and then batman begins kind of right down the line um obviously with batman begins and dark knight rises being both sevens they are rather close in my mind um but i i do say that the dark knight rises is better than the batman begins Okay, that's exactly my ranking is The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and Batman Begins. Oh, interesting. But nevertheless, like I said, The Dark Knight is such a heavy film. It's such a heavy two and a half hours to go through. I would almost probably prefer to watch this one instead because I really love the journey of Bruce Wayne in this movie Mm -hmm. and how he is defeated by Bane and the character arc of Rising and all that it entails despite the myriad of issues that this film has i still find this movie to be highly enjoyable to yep. watch i still yep. uh i still really liked it in that sense so it also appears that we both have the same average rating for the dark knight trilogy we both on average the rating would be eight out of ten which means it's a great trilogy and i would say a strong recommend for the trilogy yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially because this these films are very, very different than pretty much any other superhero movie because they try they are very, very meaningful um, with a, and have a lot of thematic depth to them, which superhero movies sometimes do, but not always. So definitely a series that if you haven't watched yet, you should definitely check out because I think that they are worth the time looking at looking into. There's a reason why they're as popular as they are. 
there is a strong reason for that as well. And it looks like so far for Nolan, for the whole, all of the Nolan films we reviewed on average, we're both sitting at an eight out of 10, which is interesting because our scores have been close to each other, but still mm. different. Uh, Insomnia, I still hate that movie. <laughs> okay, I don't hate it. I just think it's bad. Yeah. So I don't know. I was trying to, I was kind of struggling with other film and TV recommendations to do with this one. Um, I, I would definitely, if you haven't, if I haven't already recommended this, definitely check out Batman, the animated series um, that came out in the nineties with Kevin Conroy. I love that as well. Um, I would check out Batman mask of the phantasm that has more of a stronger female villain to it. Uh, at least from what I recall. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't remember. But that was also <laughs> a theatrically released Batman movie. Um, I don't know. This does. I like how it does have the epic feeling of like older epic films. So I would probably say if you want more of a big giant epic like this, then go check out something uh, in the 60s. Check out Dr. Zhivago. That's a movie about the Russian Revolution. Uh, kind of how communism tore apart Russia and ruined everybody's lives over there. That's more of a dramatic love story, but it's still fantastic. And it is longer than this movie, but it's great. Mm -hmm. For me, um, the film that I kept relating this to in some aspects is Children of Men. Oh. Um, that one also kind of ends with somewhat of a revolution. Uh, the stories are vastly different, <laughs> uh, but I still, and tonally they're kind of similar as well. So if you enjoy The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Children of Men might not be uh, a movie that you could check out next if you're willing to go into that kind of territory. It is much heavier than this movie is, um, but I would say that I did get a lot of, of the same feelings that I got when I was watching Children of Men. Well, listeners, that wraps it up for our Dark Knight trilogy review, but we're not done reviewing Nolan films quite yet. We are reviewing up to the release of Tenant at the end of July. So that means next week we are going to be coming back with Interstellar and we're not taking any breaks until Tenant. We are going to review the rest of Nolan films straight through, which yep, there's there's only not many, right? There's only like two Interstellar. Dunkirk? So two more. We have two more films before Tenet. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow, or until we finish the series of Tenet. That is less than I thought there was. I was thinking there was... I mean, technically, we do have Tenet. So technically, we do have three more. Mm -hmm. Nolan wasn't taking a break, though, between any of these films. He yeah. did uh, produce and executive produce um a uh, number of films, and he also did direct. It was a short film, though, called Quay, about the Quay brothers. Um, but his next movie after The Dark Knight Rises is he does come on to produce for the first time. He produces Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. And then he would come back the same year as Interstellar. His director of photography, who's always worked with Wally Feister, tried his hand at directing with Johnny Depp in Transcendence, 
I could be wrong, but I, I'm not sure if Wally Feister um, is his director of photography on Interstellar because I know he is busy doing his first directorial debut as Transcendence. I don't think he's ever directed since. It didn't go over well. So the DOP for Interstellar and then uh, Dunkirk mm -hmm. um, was Hoyt Van Hoytema. Oh. So different guy. He's uh, from Switzerland, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's interesting that uh, Wally Feister doesn't come back. I knew he probably wouldn't, at least for Interstellar, because he would be busy directing his own film. I'm pretty excited, actually, to review Interstellar. I don't remember a lot about the movie. I know it's about 10 minutes shy of three hours. Yeah, it's long. It's yeah, really long. It's really long. It's out in space. He's doing something totally different. I know it is number 30 on the IMDb Top 250. Mm -hmm. It's one of his highest rated films on uh, IMDb. I believe it's like his third highest rating if I'm just looking at the scores here. It's not considered as good actually as The Dark Knight Rises, but we'll talk about that next week. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that Interstellar at the time was one of the best theatrical experience I, experiences I had ever had mm. when I watched it. So I'll be able to talk about that next week. I'm actually really excited because I haven't seen it for a couple of years. Yeah, me too. I'm also shocked Hans Zimmer didn't get at least an Academy Award. I don't think any of the Batman movies actually. I thought he had one. No, we did talk about the Dark Knight. He didn't get one. He there wasn't even a nomination for Shocking it. didn't get a score for anything. Yeah. Um, he will get nominated for Interstellar and Dunkirk though. Yes, he will. Well, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, the question after the show is which film in the Batman trilogy is your favorite? And also just go ahead and give us your ranking of the Dark Knight trilogy. Maybe it's completely different from ours. I want to know if anybody's is Batman Begins is one, then the Dark Knight Rises, and then their last is like the Dark Knight. Just kind of a weird, unconventional order. Yeah. What? I'm sure there are I'm sure there are people that exist that have that reading, but yeah. I'm curious. So listeners, let us know which is your favorite Batman film in the trilogy and why. Because I'm very curious to find out. And of course, we will see you next week with Interstellar. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners.
The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. The one last negative that I have is that of the portrayal of Gotham City, although, because um, in the last two movies, and especially The Dark Knight, we noted that Gotham City has is somewhat of a character all in and of its... I'm going to wait for it to oh, stop that. ringing now. Is that the phone? Yeah, it's Tommy's desk phone. Oh. Uh, Anytime now. This is long overdue. Oh, they hung up. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm unplugging this. I'm sick and tired of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would never need it. I, I don't freaking. Thank you, sir. Yes. <laughs> um, I'll just restart. Mm-hmm.